Hey, welcome to night school. And it is Friday Eve, a.k.a. First Friday, true name Thursday. The true name for this day is Thursday. Been staying up way too late the last couple nights reading about the original Night Stalker, East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer, pick your name, pick your preferred. <laughs> What's your preferred? That's what we should do. Start every conversation. Anytime you meet a new person, you should ask what their preferred terminology is for Joseph James D'Angelo. In your uh, social media bio, you should say which term you prefer for the Golden State Killer or Eurons. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've been reading about that again because he pled guilty. You know, after his arrest, I mean, I'd already kind of, you know, I don't want to rehash anything about that case. I did an early episode, you know, early on in Every Night to School, and I, I did an episode where I talked a lot about that that case, and that was before it was solved. That was before any arrest had been made. And before before most of the books had even come out. And, you know, you can see where even something like an interest in pathology and an interest in these, you know, this terrible behavior, even that can become an endless pursuit of jewels. Because I remember when Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested a couple of years ago, it caught me by surprise. I, I found out, I got a text from my mom. I was, I had just gone for a run in the woods and I looked at my phone as I was getting in the car and you know, you can see a partial, you can see part of the message, but not the whole thing when you just look at a screen. And I just, I saw something about an arrest and the Golden State Killer and the last name D'Angelo. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? They arrested a guy? And, uh, but, uh, you know, it was funny, like, seeing online people clutching at their jewels like I knew about him first I knew about the case first oh I used to call him I know him as Eron's I know him as the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker and as far as preferred terminology I actually do prefer original Night Stalker there's something about that I, it kind of reminds me of when bands sometimes you'll see when bands have the same name the first one will put a prefix on it, like the band Mayhem, just as an example. They started calling themselves the True Mayhem because they wanted to let everyone know they're the real one. They're the original. And other bands have done that. Or even I saw a documentary years ago about New York pizzerias, and there's a, I've never even been to New York, but there's a... Uh, a famous New York pizzeria, a popular pizzeria called Ray's. And because of its popularity, you know, Monkey See, Monkey Do, a lot of other pizzerias started calling themselves variations of Ray's. And so you ended up with original Ray's, that's actually a real one, as well as famous Ray's. 
So it's funny that that sort of logic even ends up being applied to serial killers, where it's like, oh, no, this was the original Night Stalker, not to be confused with the famous or infamous Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, who came later. This was the original one that didn't just, it didn't, the name didn't pick up quite enough traction. The case wasn't quite as well known. So just, you know, not that it's a funny subject, but there is some little, it makes me smirk to think just that it required a prefix. The original Night Stalker. But, uh, but yeah, when, when he was arrested, when D'Angelo was arrested... It was sort of disgusting, but also kind of expected and also relatable. Disgusting, expected, and relatable. To see people who are quote-unquote true crime buffs say, oh, well, I knew about this case before they arrested him. Oh, I knew him before the, the media started calling him the Golden State Killer. Because we do that about everything, and I, I recommend listening to my episode, uh, Endless Pursuit of Jewels, because I feel like I really, for once, said what I wanted to say about something. And in that episode, I talk about how we manage to do this about everything. We manage to clutch at these jewels. We're always hunting for these jewels, and we want them to be ours, even when they don't belong to us. And I don't need... I don't mean to get out there and be like nothing tr- nothing truly belongs to us we're just here temporarily temporarily uh you know not even to get all out there about it but even just something like following a true crime case it's like because i was i invested a lot into just the sleuthing and the speculating and the you know combing over details of that case while it was you know still ongoing when I first got interested in it, interested in it, and I could feel the impulse to do what I'm talking about. When he was arrested, I could feel the impulse to be like, "Oh well, uh, where were you four years ago? I didn't see your name on the forum of people who are speculating and trying to come up with suspects." Because everybody kind of has that fantasy, and I feel like it's become more common in recent years as true crime has become even deeper even even more deeply entrenched in our culture and i don't mean the crime itself i'm saying the genre shows books you know as that's become even more deeply entrenched it's not new people have always had an interest in crime criminal cases serial killers pathology people have always had an interest in that uh but it, it as a genre it has become much more deeply entrenched in our culture, at least in America. I don't know about elsewhere. Because in America, we've had some very interesting cases. You know, that's one of the reasons I feel like we've produced uh, the most interesting examples of that monstrous pathology that produces serial killers. And maybe that, I don't, you know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Uh, actually, I, I will have something to say about that. I don't know what to say. I will have something to say. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's just that endless pursuit of jewels, or even with something that has nothing to do with us, that just has to do with justice. You know, there's this tendency to be like, well, I, I know. I knew. 
I knew about this case, and, and I don't mean to harp on that for too long. I think you get my point, but... You know, I did say in the episode Endless Pursuit of Jewels that we do this about everything. It's like, I knew about that band first. I saw that movie first. Oh, you heard about that book from me. You heard about that book from me. I told you. In case you forgot, I'm the one who found it. I'm the treasure hunter. I'm the discoverer. I'm Christopher Columbus. You know, we do have that in us. And it's sometimes the more passionate we are about a subject or the more invested we are in it, the more likely we are to be that way. And it's not a good feeling. We want credit. For what? Especially with something like true crime. What do you want credit for? You know, and I, I know, and, it, and it's not that I'm, you know, all these people I saw who were being that way when D'Angelo was arrested. I understood it because I felt that way too, but I, I knew that I, you know, I, I could be like, oh, uh, I mean, I drew a picture of his last victim. It was called Why Janelle. I drew a, one of the, in my opinion, one of the better drawings I've ever done. It was when I was just immersed in this case and just trying to wrap my brain around the enigma of this guy. And I guess, you know, to get into the next, the next phase of this, this episode is just, you know, for me, it was like what was so strange about this when he was arrested was I didn't even really think he was real. You know, I knew that he had killed these people. I knew that he had attacked these women. I knew I knew the case so well, but it got to the point where I almost didn't even think this guy was real. Like, and I don't I don't mean that literally like I actually thought he was some sort of entity or manifestation of darkness, but I started to view him in a similar way to the way Grendel is described in Beowulf. And I don't know, I've only read one translation, I don't know how it varies, but, you know, what struck me when I read Beowulf is just how incredible Grendel is described and how amorphous and nonspecific the description of him is. And how he's, I've never seen evil described so well. Just the pure manifestation of evil. Because it can always teeter into something cheesy or just, uh, or, or it can downplay evil. You know, anytime you read a description of evil, but reading the description of Grendel, it was such an early description of a creature that is the manifestation of, of just the shadows and who creeps and stalks and lives to commit horrible acts you know when i it's it's just it's kind of how i started to view the original night stalker the golden state killer and uh you know when he was finally arrested that was just the strangest thing is being able to put a face to know this was a man who lived a life and I've never been one of these people who likes to call serial killers monsters. You know, I know I just referred to their behavior as, you know, the product of monstrous pathology. And I think it is a monster. It, it is monstrous behavior. But it's always been important to me when I, especially when I was just, when my focus, when I was studying true crime and serial killers, it was very important for me not to get caught up in that sort of language and logic that says, oh, these people aren't human. Because I think we have to recognize these people as human, not as 
aliens, not as monsters. We have to see that these are the same thing that produces the same exact DNA that can produce somebody who is filled with kindness and benevolence can become malignant and produce the exact opposite. And both of those things represent the spectrum of humanity. And so, yeah, casually, yeah. I mean, it's not like if somebody says, oh, Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer was a monster. It's not like I'm going to be like, actually, he was a human. And if we want to truly understand this pathology, we have to not call him a monster. You know, it's, it's, nobody wants that kind of annoying correction. But just in my own study of this stuff, especially when I was younger, it was important for me not to think of these people as monsters. But that said, why, why the original Night Stalker Golden State Killer case was so interesting to me is because there was no face. You know, all of my previous, you know, study, and I, I don't mean that to sound pretentious, study, but it wasn't entertainment. I wasn't, you know, yeah, it was interesting, but it wasn't like I was reading this stuff for entertainment. It wasn't like I was uh, trying, I was actually trying to learn, and so I would call it study. And I was never interested in the gore, you know, yeah, M.O.'s. And, you know, the things they did were part of that. But I've never, I'm very squeamish. So it's like the gore was just sort of a necessary part of learning that was uncomfortable and is uncomfortable for me. I mean, I have a really bad wound on my arm right now. I fell while running. And even that is just horrifying to me. Like seeing this horrible wound try, try to heal and the colors and... Uh, so it's like, you know, so it's any kind of gore to me is, is horrifying, but, uh, you know, for me, it was like, there was never anything entertaining about it. Although, you know, and I, and I have, you know, it, I went through a phase, especially when I was deeply studying this original Night Stalker, where, like I said, I, I drew a picture of, of one of his victims, a beautiful girl. There was something striking about her. The fact that there was this hiatus in his murders, and then he killed her out of nowhere. There, it was just to me. It was just I needed to express that artistically. And uh, so it's like you know, true crime and and this subject matter did work its way into my art. Like I went through a phase of drawing art that was very kind of voyeuristic and predatory, and consciously so. And it wasn't meant to glorify anything. I don't need to give a disclaimer, but it wasn't meant to glorify anything. It was just, I think I had a goal for a while of doing art that was eerie without the obvious formula of eeriness. You know, because like anybody can draw a skull, anybody can draw something violent, and oftentimes it comes across cartoony or like a glorification of that. So I kind of had this subconscious goal for a while of being like, I want to make art that is disturbing in a way that isn't obvious. I mean, it's dark. There's no denying it. It's not like it's, you know, hiding what it is. But I, I did have this goal of doing art that was dark and disturbing without being too paint-by-numbers about it. But enough about my art. Just to say that, you know this stuff did work its way into my creativity, and I have a strange guilt over that. 
not that I feel bad because like I, I I truly don't feel that I glorified it, but it's just I don't know. I guess I guess it's not so much guilt as much as something that I wouldn't do now. Um, but uh, but to get back to what I was saying, you know, I think what was so interesting to me about that case is that it was a cold case that we had no idea who this was, and my interest in other serial killers, there was always a face. There was always a backstory. There was always a biography to read. You know, you can find a million pictures of Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. You can find out where they lived, who their parents were. You know, you know everything about them, just about. You know, of course, you never learn everything about these people. They're shadowy people, and they they love to, even when they confess... They still keep mysteries and secrets to themselves. Even, even when they bear it all, even when they admit guilt, they still hold on to certain little secrets, and that's just part of the whole thing. That's part of, the, that's part of what's fascinating about it. But, you know, yeah, you could go to the bookstore and buy a book about these people. You could Google them and read, you know extensive biographies on these serial killers. So I think with the original Night Stalker, all we had for years was just this enigmatic figure, this true shadow without a face, without a name, without a biography. And uh, that uh, was just so different. And that case really represented the end of the road for me as far as my interest in true crime goes. Not the mafia. I feel like that's something entirely different. I think, I think of the mafia and my just enduring interest in that as a sociological criminal phenomenon. It has a lot more to do with this weird Italian subculture than it... It's not the same. Even though they commit murders, have committed murders, especially in the past... You know, to me, there really isn't much correlation between mafia and serial killers, even though you'll find their books, even though you'll find books about those subjects in the same true crime section of Barnes and Noble, of Barnes and Nobles, uh, even though you'll find those in the same section, I, I, I find that, you know, my interest in them is completely different. I think the subject matter is completely different, even though they both involve quote-unquote, true crime. But, uh, you know, yeah, with the with the original Night Stalker case, I think it was just so different, and it did represent an end of the road for me, where I was like, there's never going to be another case that interests me this much. There's never going to be another case that is this enigmatic, a serial killer that is this strange... Really, it was reading about Grendel. I felt like I was studying Grendel. And I felt like I was staring into the abyss, too. You know, not to get into cliche Nietzsche quotes, but, you know, the abyss staring back at you. I did feel that as well, because you take... when When you are interested in something like that, you take it with you a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I would be walking home from bars thinking... This guy is out there somewhere, you know, and, and when you know, or he's not, or he's dead, but either way, just it, like I said, it, I started to believe this guy wasn't even necessarily real. Not like I really believe that. I don't, you know, I just, but it's just, to me, he became some sort of symbol of evil, almost the way Grendel is described, something that you can't really fit into one shape or another, 
more like a feeling, more like a feeling of horror than anything. And if you immerse yourself in that, if you study that, if you read about that a lot, you'll you get kind of this low it's almost like having a low grade virus where you just know you're sick but you're not completely sick like not enough to go to the doctor or even take medicine it's like oh i, I can just i can feel that my throat's a little sore and i've got maybe some minor sniffles but my nose isn't running that's almost what it felt like to me when i was more interested in true crime and in particular the original Night Stalker case. It was almost like having a low-grade virus where you start to look around and mundane things start to look a little more sinister. Like walking by an alleyway late at night on the way home from a bar, you start to imagine someone lurking there and not someone who's out to get me, but just some something there. And that does do something to you. And uh, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, my life was just sort of, it was in a bad place too during all of that. Because I think, you know, and, and I don't think that my life was in a bad place because I was reading about dark stuff. But I think it all kind of plays into everything else. I think everything feeds into everything. And even the last couple of nights, you know, because watching this guy plead guilty watching Joseph James D'Angelo plead guilty to 13 murders. And three of those murders, it, w- it was long debated whether he did them or not because they were spur-of-the-moment shootings. And one of them was in a completely different city, but it was done by a burglar who was attempting to kidnap this guy's daughter, and it had many similarities because this guy, he had a signature to everything he did, and, and, but people long debated, was it really him? They were detectives who didn't believe it was. And then to now have him in court to watch him in this surreal coronavi world we're living in with this, he had like a, a welder's mask on or whatever what you call it, like a plexiglass like thing over his face. And so did his lawyers. And to see that and just to hear him in his weird croaky little voice say he admits to 13 murders and all of these other rapes and attacks... You know, just to be seeing that now is surreal. And uh, what was I getting at? Um, I don't know, I guess, well, yeah, what I was going to get at is just the way that this stuff can kind of give you this almost low-grade mind virus. And and even just reading and trying to catch up, not a lot has come out. Because after the arrest, I, I, you know, I was reading about it for about a week and then I stopped. I was just like, well, nothing is going to come out until trial, you know? And that's the funny thing about people who are interested in this stuff. They don't understand the way the law works where someone gets arrested and it's not like the investigators are like, oh, he got arrested and, uh, you know, we're waiting for the trial. So we're going to tell you everything about him. Cause I, I would see comments online where people are like, why aren't the investigators telling us this, this, and this? And it's like, when someone is has been arrested, especially for uh, for a crime like this, but any crime, but when someone has been arrested for, as a serial killer, especially, and it's like, they're not going to compromise their case by being like, well, just, just for public consumption, for your entertainment, we're going to tell you everything about what we know before trial. 
But people, you know, we're so eager for information, and we're also so used to being able to go pick up a biography about Ted Bundy and know everything right away, you know, at our own speed, that when someone, when we do have somebody like this who is arrested, people are like, well, why am I not getting the full scoop? Why am I not getting the full scoop? And it's like, that's not how the wheels of justice turn. This is my jewel. And it's a, the real crime is that I can't find all the information I want to find right away about this guy. But anyway, so, you know, him pleading guilty and all that, and then, you know, me deciding to catch up on it. And not a lot has come out. The bits and pieces, you know, his ex-fiance gave some very interesting information in an article. You know, a nephew of his apparently told a journalist that Joseph James D'Angelo witnessed his, when he was like nine or ten years old, he witnessed his little sister be sexually assaulted, and she was seven, by two military airmen in an abandoned warehouse in Germany. So it's like you can see, if that's true, it's like you can see where the seeds of trauma were planted. And little things come out about his history. But not a lot has come out that we didn't already know, except for the fact that he is now admitted to not just the ten murders that we were certain he did, but we now know he did thirteen at least. And even though he pled guilty, he hasn't cooperated. So he's pled guilty to the crimes he was conf- uh, he was charged with, but he hasn't actually fully cooperated. You know, because sometimes, and again, even when these guys do cooperate, they leave things out deliberately. I mean, these are people who live their entire lives with a little secret that only they know. It's not like when you and your best friend have some secret that, you know, you both know, that time that you teepeed a house or something. I've never done that. <laughs> I just thought of that. I've never, I don't think I've ever teepeed a house. But uh, but it's, it's not like something that only you or only you and your significant other know. It's not like a secret that, that's just between you and your wife or your girlfriend. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that only you know which is insane. Not really, because, I mean, I think it's good to be able to have a handle on on your own, you know, what other people need to know about you and all this, but it's like when you think about that, that this person is walking around and they've had this impact on all of these people in this horrible, monstrous way, and only they know. I don't know, man. It's just, that's crazy to think about. But they enjoy, even when they cooperate, even when they confess, it's like they still keep little bits of information to themselves because I guess part of the, what I've learned, you know, in in years of studying this is just that part of the thrill of it to them is being the only person who knows certain things. Um, But, you know, just reading about the case again the last couple nights, just trying to get bits and pieces since he's now pled guilty. And hopefully more will come out. Hopefully we will get more biographical information. Not that I want to immerse myself in it again, but it is just something that I, since I was so interested in it before, I would like to get as complete of a picture as I can, just as a kind of, you know, some kind of punctuation at the end of the sentence, no pun intended. You know, the punctuation at the end of his prison sentence. No, but uh, 
But I can even just feel it where, like, the last couple nights, staying up late, reading little bits and pieces, speculating. I'm just like, I can already feel where the virus of this affects me. And I think about people being so immersed in true crime, the fact that true crime has become almost this pastime of American culture. And realizing that is one of the reasons why I stepped away from it and why my life has improved since I stopped paying attention to every dark thing that crosses my path. And a lot of things do, because like I said, you can't turn on a TV, you can't go online, you can't go to a bookstore without coming across this stuff. And you should be able to. You know, I don't believe in censorship of any kind, but uh, it, it is just one of those things that's difficult to avoid, the number of forensic shows. It's not even just the guys who did this not even just the people who had sprees or, you know, put the serial into serial killer. It's also just the one-offs, the husbands who killed their wives, the wives who plotted with their secret boyfriends to kill their husbands, you know, the, the moms who killed their children. It's just like there are so many forensic shows. There are so many stories, and it's easy to get stuck on that stuff. I mean, I was never really interested in the one-offs. I was always interested in these people who had a very unique and enduring pathology, like a serial killer. I've just never been interested in crimes of, of just immediate passion. Jealous boyfriend. I'm just never interested in those stories. But, you know, people are paying attention to all of these things. And it does kind of sit there like a virus, and it does impact the way you view the world. You know, if you see a shadowy, if you're in a dark room, you know, your imagination is going to go different places if you've been reading about serial killers opposed to, you know, if you're, <laughs> you know, studying scripture. You're going to, you know, if, if you're like, I like just, uh, this is like a perfect example. And I, hopefully this doesn't come across annoying, but you know, when I've been immersed in say some sort of Buddhist study and I'm in a dark room, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a perfect representation of that beautiful emptiness that is so desirable. Whereas if I've been reading a book about true crime and I'm in that same dark room, it's like, oh yeah, this is there's evil all around me, <laughs> you know? It's like you project based on what you've been consuming. And I just, I wonder, not not that, well, here, here's the thing. I want to clarify this. You know, I'm talking about how this true crime industry, and, it, and people view it as a form of entertainment, which I don't like. But, you know, I'm, I'm speculating about how that's affecting people. The fact that people are listening to podcasts, true crime podcasts are very popular. So it's it's really every medium has this and it's popular in, on every medium and people can choose to be into that if they want. I would never tell people not to pay attention to what interests them. But my concern isn't that people are, are becoming serial killers because of this stuff. Because we can see where serial killers, the real peak of serial killers let's say the 1960s through the 1980s, you know, I don't know if that's a perfect timeline, but I know that a lot of the famous serial killers that we, the household names, were active during those periods. And those guys weren't necessarily, they didn't necessarily have access to all of these indulgent true crime stories on every medium 
and a lot of these guys they've said that they they had to check out detective magazines they had to use their imaginations and maybe that was part of the problem maybe the fantasizing played into part of the problem maybe because they couldn't have their needs met vicariously by reading detailed case studies maybe that actually contributed to their need to act these things out i don't know but the truth is they didn't have access to as much as we do so it's not that i'm so so we can see where this peak period of serial killer activity really didn't have anything to do with true having access to true crime stories it it, it had very little you know to you know so it's not that my concern is that all these people, especially young women, because young women are a huge audience for this. Young women are, are some of the biggest fans of true crime podcasts. Um, you know, some of my strongest connections with, you know, my friends who are women started over true crime conversations. And uh, but I think that my cons- my concern is just it's that sort of low grade virus that I'm talking about where I think it puts people in, I think it dumbs down their view of humanity, and I think it makes them kind of depressed without even necessarily realizing it. I think it just does, for lack lack of, let's, let's get away from specifics and just say it does something to people. It kind of, it, it brings them down. It's, it's, it's descending opposed to ascending. It's, it's descending subject matter opposed to ascendant, descendant. And uh, I do think it kind of, it gives people kind of a low-grade virus. And having shut a lot of that subject matter out, naturally. You know, I think my interest in it, like I said, the, the original Night Stalker case, that was sort of the end of the road for me. And so it's not that I was like, I'm not going to read about this stuff anymore. I'm not going to read about that stuff anymore. You know, it wasn't even like I had to do that. It was just sort of a natural decline in interest. I was just like, you know, I feel like I found an understanding. And part of that understanding is that I will never truly understand what motivates these people. And it kind of led me to believe a little bit more in demonic possession, too. You know, not not demons in the way that we imagine them, not in the way that demons are have been illustrated over the years, but something unseen. And the fact that most serial killers, many of them at least, well, here's a couple things. Let's just, this is a tangent, but a couple things I've noticed about serial killers is many of them feel possessed, and they've said as much, and I don't think it's them trying to pull one over on anybody. Just a few examples offhand. Uh, when Joseph James D'Angelo was arrested and in the interrogation room, he wasn't cooperative, but they heard him say to himself, like, I tried to push him out. I tried to push him out. I'm not quoting. Who, who cares about the actual quote? Something to the effect of, I tried to push him out. And he referred to him as Jerry, which is kind of silly. Like he's possessed by some alter ego named Jerry. But that's come up time and time again. Danny Rowling had what he called Gemini, which was his astrological sign, which I'll get into in a second. But Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper, he, I was going to make a joke, like the original Gainesville Ripper, but there was only one. Um, but uh, 
he referred he, he referred to multiple personalities. You know, I don't think he actually had multiple personality disorder, but Danny Rowling, when he would rob grocery stores, and I think he robbed a bank, but he was very into committing robberies, and he would refer to his robbing personality as Jesse, influenced by Jesse James, which is really dorky. Um, I'm robbing a bank now, so I'm going to go by Jesse. I'm a Wild West, because he had this Wild West fantasy. But when he was committing murders, he felt possessed by this Gemini alter ego. And, you know, Gemini is the dual astrological sign. You know, it's, it's the twins. So it plays into the idea of an alter ego. And I don't think Danny Rowling thought that out. But he said he felt possessed by this thing, Gemini. And Ted Bundy referred to it as the entity. The BTK killer, uh, Dennis Rader, referred to it as Factor X. And he illustrated it. He drew it. These crude little drawings. And he drew it as this kind of lizard dragon thing. And it, again, kind of silly. Kind of dorky. But when you look at what these guys did, it kind of takes the dorkiness out of the picture. But Dennis Rader saw himself as possessed by this Factor X, as he called it. And yeah, he illustrated it. And uh, Edmund Kemper had a a name, this really silly name. I'm actually going to use my... It's kind of like Lifelines. If you ever watched like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You know, you only have limited lifelines. For me, like on this show, I almost... I never look things up. But when I do, I give myself one. And okay, yeah. I wanted to get this right because it's so silly sounding. But Edmund Kemper, he referred to this same thing as his little zapples. Z-A-P-P-L-E-S. You know, so that's that's not attempt that's not Gemini, that's not the entity. Little zapples. I'm not even kidding. But he described it similarly to the way all of these other guys described their sort of feeling of possession. And and people hear that and they're very skeptical. They think, oh well, uh, well. And then I think you could look at the zodiac too. And even though that's a case, that's an enigma, who's never been caught. But uh, I don't really. I don't, I don't want to get into the zodiac thing. Uh, but you know, the zodiac persona itself is a form of that. And once again, astrological zodiac. And the Zodiac, though, that I think even, we don't know who he was, but clearly the Zodiac persona was a manifestation of this same thing that these other serial killers referred to as Gemini, the entity, Little Zapples, Factor X, or just Jerry, which is a really mundane twist on the story if that's accurate if he's if he's telling the truth which he I, I don't have any reason to doubt him sometimes you just have to take people's word for it you know because we because the responses I've seen to Joseph D'Angelo muttering to himself about pushing Jerry out and how like he tried to push Jerry out and live a happy life but you know Jerry destroyed these people's lives people hear that and they're like oh he's feigning insanity He's, or he's trying to make an excuse. And I understand why people think that. But sometimes I do just try to take things at face value and say, this guy was doing something that most of us can't even imagine. 
doing with our lives. This guy was spending just all of his free time stalking people, breaking into homes multiple times. He was a police officer. You know, he was, he was uh, doing all of this. It, it was, he was consumed by this. And there's no denying that. And so sometimes maybe he did just have this mundane possession, this mundane demon inside of him that he, he referred to as Jerry for whatever reason. I don't think all of these guys are just making it up. I don't know. It's just that's, that's the conclusion that I've been led to. And something else that I was talking to my friend Nick about recently, and it's something I was made aware of about maybe three years ago. Almost all of the well-known serial killers are one of four astrological signs, what are called the mutable signs. And I don't really know what that means. I just know that they're all in the same category. And almost all of the guys I just mentioned, you know, except for Joseph D'Angelo, so he's kind of enigmatic in this way, too. He's a Scorpio. But almost all of the known, well-known serial killers are... Sagittarius, Pisces, Virgo, and there's there's another one. Um, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna use a second lifeline because I want to get this right. Two lifelines in one episode. This is not good. <laughs> my own my ethics are just down the toilet. See that's what happens. You start reading about true crime again, and your ethics go down the toilet. You do two Google searches in a single episode. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, I want to, I want to get this right because it's fascinating. I mean, it, cause it's a huge list and, you know, my understanding of astrology is mostly limited to people who have shared the information with me. Like I've learned more about, I, like I check, you know, I'm interested in astrology. I, I check my horoscope. I, I've read about it here and there. It's, it's fun for me because people want to get all like, oh, it's pseudoscience. You're being sold snake oil. And it's like, it's just fun for me. And I have found a lot of truth and a lot of parallels in it. Does it mean that my entire every day can be predicted? No. But are there certain patterns that you see play out? Yes. And I think the best proof of that is in this, the fact that virtually all of the infamous serial killers are either Pisces, Gemini, Virgo, or Sagittarius. And those are the mutable signs. Those are a category of signs. And you think about the word mutable, you know, what that means, you know, you just being able to mute certain characteristics, and that's what these guys do. They have to mute certain characteristics to exist in the world. And the fact that, you know, Gemini is known for it's it's represented by the twins because it's seen as the this dichotomy between you know almost two personalities inside of you which we all have or some some of us have more than that uh but it's just interesting how that plays a role and all of these guys fall into one of those astrological zodiac signs most of them but not Joseph D'Angelo which is interesting he's a Scorpio 
And I understand the absurdity of talking about serial killer astrology, but to me, it's actually some of the best evidence that astrology does have some sort of meaning, that it does have, that it can be, that a pattern can be detected. Does that mean that every Pisces, Gemini, Virgo, or Sagittarius is a potential serial killer? No. But why is it that so many of them fall into those four categories? You know, this list has zero Capricorns on it. Not to say there, there probably is a Capricorn serial killer. I'm sure of it. But, you know, I'm not aware of any single one. Actually, the only one on this list is, is a female serial killer who I've never even heard of, Dorothy Puente, January 9th. So the only, <laughs> the only person on this list who's a, who's a Capricorn like me is a female serial killer I've never heard of. But this list, you know, it's just, it's just it's fascinating to me. And, it, of course, the list includes Charles Manson, who's not a serial killer. Um, but uh, all of the big ones. Let me just... Ed Gein, Edmund Kemper, Gary Heidnick, who I'm not familiar with, Gerald Stano, who I'm not familiar with, Mary Beth Tinning, uh, some of these who I just don't know, but uh, Peter Sutcliffe the Yorkshire Ripper, Richard Cottingham, Robert Lee Yates, Ted Bundy, Wayne Williams, Mary Bell, Richard Beganwald, Paul Bernardo, Richard Ramirez, Albert DeSalvo, Rodney Alcala, John Wayne Gacy, Randy Stephen Kraft, Richard Angelo, Dennis Nielsen, Donald Henry Gaskins, Jeffrey Dahmer, David Berkowitz, John Collins, Dennis Rader, Christopher Wilder, Gary Ridgway, Eileen Wernos, Kenneth Bianchi, Douglas Clark, Henry Lee Lucas, Peter Curtin, Richard Chase, you know, uh, it just goes on. I mean, there's just all the, uh, Arthur Shawcross, Otis Toole, you know, it's just it, like all those big names and, you know, some lesser known, but just the fact, even if that's just a, even, and I'm sorry to read a list off, it's annoying to just read a list of serial killer names. It's not what I strive to do on this show. And uh, I think I've made my point, but just, uh, even if that is just a snippet of data, the fact that it includes some of the more prolific killers and more infamous names, most of them is very telling to me and tells me that maybe there is something to astrology. Not that everything is entirely predictable. Oh my God, one of my, my baby was born under one of the mutable zodiac signs. My baby's a Pisces. Better get an abortion because he's going to become a killer. You know, no, you, don't, <laughs> you know, nobody's thinking that way about this, but it is worth pointing out. And I am kind of glad there's no Capricorns except for some obscure female serial killer. Um, uh, but it is interesting how that plays out. But I, I guess, you know, I want to get to the a big point that I want to make. And, you know, the peak of serial killers from the 60s through the 80s, while they didn't have this true crime industry pumping out podcasts, books, shows, movies, Internet, while they didn't have that. So therefore, we can't say that having more access to true crime information produces more serial killers, I do believe that it kind of gives people this low-grade virus. It kind of lowers their view of the world and humanity, and maybe I'm just making that up. Maybe it's not true, but I, 
you see so much depression, and, and I mentioned how young women are obsessed with this stuff. Young women are some of the biggest fans of this subject matter and would call themselves fans. Young women have a favorite serial killer. You know, and that's, that's co- like, I, I don't want to say common. Like, you, you don't go up to every girl and ask them, and they're like, what, what's your favorite serial killer? And they have an answer. But there's a surprising amount of young women who have preferences of, like, you know, and, and they kind of treat these as jewels. I mean, some of the people I was talking about who were like, well, I heard about the original Night Stalker before he was known as the Golden State Killer and got arrested. Some of those pe- a lot of those people that I saw were actually women, which was interesting. And this isn't an indictment of women. I mean, men are the one who commit these freaking crimes. You know, I want to make something clear. If I ever sound like I'm giving women a hard time, you should hear what I think about men. You know, really, uh, if you ever think that I'm being critical, extra critical of women, you don't even know what I have to say about men. And not to say that I dislike men, but it's just, you know, I, as a man, I have such a greater understanding of a man's shortcomings and bullshit and insecurities that if you really want to hear <laughs> a, a, a true criticism of a certain type of human... You know, this is a disclaimer. This is a disclaimer. Uh, But just, I have noticed that young women are very depressed and they spend all their time reading true crime and watching and listening to true crime podcasts and shows. And I don't think that's entirely unrelated. It's sort of a chicken and the egg thing, but I, I do think it plays a role and sort of creates this sort of just, I don't know, low grade virus in people. But while that 60s to to 80s serial killer peak didn't have this true crime industry fueling it, it was fueled by great unrest. It was post-World War II where systematic horrors played out. PTSD, Vietnam, Vietnam protests, civil rights, you know, conflicts, things that were necessary to get where we're at today— or at least where we were at yesterday. I don't know about where we're at today. But there was a lot of global trauma and local trauma. And I, I worry that what we're seeing right now between the coronavirus and civil unrest, people experiencing dire straits through no fault of their own, I'm really worried about what that's going to do to the male mind. Because I, I talked at the start of Coronivi, when the Coronivi quarantine started, you know, about how I'm very nervous about the mental health impact of this long term. And we've seen that immediately. I mean, we've seen people have lost just any grasp of, of you know, common reason and logic. And even right or wrong, people are doing things very illogically. And that's a logic that, yeah, it might be open to interpretation. Logic is open to interpretation because that's part of logic is that it can be interpreted and reinterpreted. But it was also built over eons. It took us a long time to build the logic that we have and recognize the common logic that we share. And that's being undermined right now. There's a lot of, a lot of cognitive dissonance. And you even see the way that we react to violence 
is filled with cognitive dissonance, where people are picking and choosing what violence they want to notice and pay attention to, and we're seeing a surge in violence and a surge in lawlessness. I mean, whether you love the police or hate them, or if you're like me and see police as part of a functional society, no matter what you call them, whether you call them a security force, whether you call them uh, defenders of the peace, you know, it doesn't matter. You're going to have police one way or another in uh, any civilization or society. You can rename them, you can retrain them, but you're going to have something like police. And the reality is they're going to be imperfect. And they're also going to, pro- they're going to produce people who do horrible things while doing their job, like someone who kills an, an innocent man as part of a routine arrest, which happens. And you're also going to have Joseph James D'Angelo's guys who decided to become police officers to further enable their deep, dark, monstrous pathology. But you're also going to have people who become cops out of some, you know, sense of, of justice. And to say they don't exist is, that's so cynical, it's not even worth addressing. To say that, you know, or to say that the system is so corrupt that someone can't possibly be a good cop. Again, I, I, I'm not even good. That, to me, that's just throwing logic out the window, you know. Our life is complicated. Our, our world produces people who are good, bad, and, and it produces simply people who are neutral, who do good things and sometimes do bad things. It has all of that in it. And the same is true for police officers. But there is this great lawlessness now. And there is a surge in violence, and there might be more to come. And it's opportunistic, impulsive violence. Shootings, probably a lot of them personal, but we're seeing more... There's a lot of more videos going around of people just driving around, and they'll like just hop out of their car and punch someone in the head and hop back in their car. I mean, I was walking yesterday, I was running, and I was in an area that doesn't have sidewalks, kind of rural... This is a stupid story, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, but uh, And these guys in a Jeep, a convertible Jeep, were going really fast. And I, I stood off in, in a ditch. I actually had to stand in a ditch. Really, I recommend, if you, if you ever feel like you have ego problems, your ego's getting a little big, just stand in a ditch. You'll feel real low and real small. <laughs> but this guy, these guys in a Jeep, and normally on this particular road, it's, you know, it's, there's like farms around and there's no sidewalk. It's not a ton of traffic, but it's, you know, a 40 mile an hour road, 35, 40 miles an hour, and people go fast. And, you know, I, I get off to the side, but a lot of people are conscientious. And even if I get off to the side, they kind of swerve into the oncoming lane if no one's coming to give you more safety. They're pedestrian conscious. And uh, this Jeep, though, didn't swerve at all, even though they could have or should have. And I, I kind of had my arms crossed in this ditch, and I made eye contact with them. And I could just tell they had a chip on their shoulder. And I don't think they liked the way my face looked. And they, I saw, like, right after they passed me, they did a U-turn, and I was like, oh, fuck. And I, I, st- I was jogging, so I just resumed my jog. And they didn't end up coming up behind me. Maybe it was all in my head. Maybe because I've been reading about true crime again, I was so paranoid about 
these I, I thought these people were mad at my face and were going to come and get me. And I actually do think that they were pissed off at, at me for making some sort of weird eye contact with them for driving recklessly. But I think they caught themselves in the moment where, like, this wasn't worth it. This isn't worth it. Because, I mean, the na- if, the way they did this U-turn right after passing me was just... It was very aggressive, and I just... I got a feeling. My intuition kicked in, and I was like, I think these guys are about to fuck with me. They didn't, though. And maybe it was all in my head. Maybe it was just all in my head because I've been reading about the original Night Stalker again. And now I, I see humanity as a slightly lower, I, I have a descending view of humanity because of that. Maybe that's true, you know, but, but either way, I just got a feeling, and I, it's a feeling that's out there right now, where you can feel this kind of impulsive, opportunistic possibility of violence, and we're seeing that violence play out in different places. Um, so that's a thing, but in the same way that this sort of global trauma and tension, and in particular American trauma and tension, is believed to have created the very unique American phenomenon of serial killers spanning, you know, 30 and 40 years during the 20th century, I'm concerned about what this is going to do. You know, we're already seeing where people are, you know, they're socially affected. There's this, there's civil unrest. But I'm concerned about the loners. I'm concerned about individuals and what they're going to do. And I'm actually shocked there haven't been mass shootings during quarantine. I mean, maybe there have been. The weird thing is, it's kind of what I'm talking about, where people are like being very selective. The news is being very selective in what they share. You, you have to seek out information in all kinds of different places to have a full picture of what's going on. And I don't go to places that are biased. I don't go to places that are generating... You know, I don't go to places that are, that are like, coming up with... Uh, that are generating artificial narratives. You know, I do try to go to different news sources, different... I, I try to find different coverage that gives me what I would consider something close to the big picture, and I'm, I'm shocked at the difference in what's being reported. And all of this stuff is verifiable, too. It's not like it's all just rumors. It's, it's like people are... News sources and journalists are being very deliberate in what they choose to cover. So maybe there have been a bunch of mass shootings, and it's just they're not being covered, because I, I just I don't even know what to think about the way things are being covered. But I don't think any mass shootings have happened recently that I know of. And I don't I don't think of mass shootings as the modern equivalent to serial killers. And one reason why mass shootings have never been interesting to me. Like I did read about Columbine when it happened. I did think Columbine was interesting because it was such a it was such a, a pivot. It was such a pivot point in our culture and there was just something about those two individuals that I felt was worth trying to understand. But it was, a, it was a different thing. It was an entirely different thing. And even though we're talking about murders, you know, spree shooters and mass shooters, it's this very hot-blooded, impulsive anger 
And even if it's plotted and planned, as it often is, it's still an entirely different expression to me. Whereas a serial killer is a deeper, it's, it's this sustained, more hateful than it is angry. You know, it's in the same way that hate, to me, is a cold, sustained anger that does burst, that does warm up and, and come out in this violent form sometimes. You know, I, I kind of see ser- serial killers as more a product of this deep-seated hatred this cold, sustained... I mean, people call them cold-blooded for a reason. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that the decline in serial killers and the rise in mass shooters is directly related. I don't think that mass shooters would have been serial killers if they had been born 40 years ago. And I don't think that serial killers would have become mass shooters if they had been born 20 years ago. I think the pathology is different, and I think they're both responding to different circumstances. But, uh, you know, we haven't really been seeing mass shootings despite the tension going on, and I wonder about that. I mean, that's going to be another reason to avoid public spaces, but I also wonder if maybe that phase is going to decline too. Because one of the reasons for the decline in serial killers, I don't think it's been a real... Maybe the circumstances going on in the world have have changed. You know, there isn't... There hasn't been that same global or even national trauma that I've been talking about that influenced that peak of serial killers in decades past. So maybe that has led to the decline. But also you see where it's just more difficult to be a serial killer. People's phones, can you can text somebody, you know, if some weird guy is bothering you, you can text someone. And even if a serial killer kills one or two people, the chances of being able to do that ten times are highly unlikely. So even if somebody has the capacity to kill many people in this predatory serial killer fashion, the chances of them getting caught before they're able to actually do that are much higher, and we have surveillance cameras everywhere. So some of these people who get caught for killing one person very well might have had it in them to keep doing it, but it's just we have, it's much easier to catch them. And if, if you catch someone for one murder, well, you, you'll never know if they were going to be a serial killer. You'll never know. You can't say. You can't measure that. Um, but, uh, you know, we've seen where technology has decreased the ability. Because, I mean, just think going back to the original Night Stalker, what gets me is, you know, some of the areas he was attacking, like the suburbs of Sacramento and the, the, you know, Contra Costa County, California. At the point he was attacking them, they didn't even have streetlights. You know, they were these suburban houses, but, it, you know, they were in areas that were much less developed and, you know, security wasn't what it was. People were far less paranoid. People were far less aware that there were these people lurking out there. It was a more innocent time as far as that goes. And now our technology probably wouldn't allow someone like that to be so prolific. Even if that person existed today and was able to commit crimes here or there, it just wouldn't they wouldn't have been that prolific. I mean, if even if you kidnap somebody who has a cell phone, their cell phone sends a signal to the tower and will tell the the cell phone company or the police where that person 
la- where that phone last pinged or whatever they call it. I'm obviously using. I'm I'm obviously very aware of the technical terminology for all of this. The cell phone companies pings. It pings the cell phone company, which I think is what it does. But but it's just that sort of thing where. You know, the technology has greatly decreased the, if not the capacity to do these things, then the ability to be prolific at them. And uh, it's also, we've also seen where modern technology has contributed to the spree shooter, the mass shooter. Almost all of these guys spend way too much time online, even the Columbine guys. They were obsessed with the internet and video and you know Doom and video games. Not that those things made them into what they were, but we can see where information overload and what I would call over communication has contributed to almost all mass shooters. They are almost all participate in in they they, they spend a lot of time looking up things that are going to agitate them and having negative interactions with people. And a lot of them posted hateful things on forums and spent a lot of time immersing themselves in dark subject matter because they had access to so much more of it. And it made them feel like they have to do something immediately. And I don't, I don't really understand the pathology of it because I haven't studied it. Because it, to me, they just they don't interest me in the same way that serial killers did. But there is this immediacy to it. There's this immediacy to the way they interact with the world. This hyper-connected communication and information. And they, in turn, kill a bunch of people in one fell swoop. And there's this immediacy to it. i got to get this out right now. And even if they plan it, it doesn't even really make a difference. Because, I mean, an unplanned mass shooting isn't that different from a planned mass shooting. Yeah, maybe the guy has more tactical gear or bombs or whatever else he brings along, more ammo. But the actual moment isn't that different between a planned and an unplanned mass shooting. Whereas a serial killer, you know, a serial killer, what they do is very different from what somebody who impulsively kills someone does. Like I said, it's this cold-blooded, predatory, the stalking, it's, it's terrifying. And while I'm scared of mass shooters, too, there's just an eeriness to the pathology of a serial killer that is, is just beyond comprehension. Because we can understand with mass shooters, oh, they're mad. They were really mad. And serial killers are often angry people, too. But it's different. It's so different that we still don't quite have the words. And we try to get Psych 101 about it and be like, oh, he just made up this character, Jerry, so that he could not take responsibility for the fact that he's a monster. And it's like, I don't think that that really covers it. I spent a lot of time studying these people, and I feel like I was left with more questions than answers. And we want answers. And we don't always get them. But uh, anyway, like I guess I worry that we're going to be entering a new phase of pathology. In the same way that serial killers, they may have always existed. There's reason to believe serial killers always existed throughout history. But I do think there was this boom where, you know, vehicles and 
a relatively civil... I think serial killers can only exist under a certain set of circumstances, and those circumstances seem to have been ideal for them when they had access to vehicles. Technology was advanced enough to where they had certain tools available to them, but it wasn't so advanced that those same tools could be used against them or that new technology could be used to prevent them um, from doing everything they wanted to do. But I do worry we could be entering a new phase of pathology on an individual level. And I mean, I've taken a lot of walks and I see some weird young men out and about. And they might be my age. I mean, I'm still a young man. I'm still a young man. I'm not 35 yet. At 35, I can run for president and then I'm no longer a young man. Unless I refer to myself as old to a 50-year-old and they go, you think you're old? Just wait till you're 50. But uh, anyway, like, you know, I see these young men, I think they're like probably my age or younger, and they're strolling around, and some of them are obviously mentally ill transients, but there's a couple of guys, like there's a guy who walks around, not my exact neighborhood, but he walks around kind of a few blocks away, and I've seen him in the woods, and I've seen him, I don't know, even on hot days, he's wearing this hood of this brown, it's like a heavy Carhartt jacket, and he he's always in this hood, and he carries this brown paper bag with him that looks empty, but he always has it with him. And I saw him in the woods one day, and I thought he was picking psilocybin mushrooms. He was looking under logs. It had been a couple days after it had rained, and I just kind of got the impression he was mushroom hunting. But I've seen him so many times that there's no way, and in all different weather, I, there's just no way that he is picking magic mushrooms every single day that I see him. And I, I had this weird interaction with him. You know, I don't, I don't even want to get into it. It wasn't negative or anything, but I could just tell he was a little off. And I don't think this guy's a serial killer or anything, but it just it just made me realize that, you know, there's this... I'm just concerned about individual young men responding to the current national global trauma and I don't know what that's going to look like and you know I don't, I don't know what I even mean by bringing up that guy I've just seen him wandering around he seems aimless and disturbed and I've seen a few more guys like that too and this is just a this is a relatively small city and I, I'm just concerned about and, and the the number of people who are forced to be alone right now and who don't know how to use loneliness as a discipline but instead, loneliness is fuel for their pathology. I worry about that. And I worry about new manifestations of these things. You know, and I don't know what that's going to look like. And hopefully it doesn't look like anything. Hopefully it never comes to be. Hopefully our world writes itself. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to focus on. That's what I am focused on. I guess I had to vomit some of this, these thoughts out as I'm kind of reading about dark subject matter again, but I just, I've seen these guys out and about, and maybe someone sees me and thinks the same thing. I'm usually walking around smiling these days. <laughs> maybe that's scary. But uh, I see these guys who just seem very disturbed, and, and I get the impression not to read too much into their lives, which I know nothing about, but I I just see them and I think like, 
I don't think those guys have the tools to deal with what's going on right now. Combined with the things that go on in your life already that can make a life dark. The things that can already make an individual's life something that strays into darkness combined with what's going on in this national global trauma, it truly is a global trauma, and this hyperconnectivity, this tension, this anger, this unrest, this disease, mental illness, frustration, dissatisfaction, things that have always been at play. None of these things are new. But neither is the disturbing pathology of an individual male who can't deal with those things. And uh, I, I hope nothing new comes. I don't know what it would even be. I don't even know what a new, I don't even know what a new mutation of that time-old male pathology would be, but it concerns me. But, uh, you know, it's summer, too, and, and summer is... Summer brings something out of people, too. And it's been a relatively cool summer so far, but when it gets very hot, you know, there's always an increase in violence. There's always an increase in tension. And so while it's, it's nice in some ways that it's summer because people can get outside and absorb that solar energy that we all need and should worship... You know, in some ways, that's better than winter, where we'd probably probably be looking at more suicides. I'm also very concerned about people lashing out in this warmth. But enough about that. Enough about that. I just had to say something. This is on my brain. It's always of interest to me, and I don't really think or talk about it as much as I used to. And I'm not trying to be like the Nostradamus of young male pathology here. But it's something that we could all be aware of. Especially, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I have no answer to something that, I have no answer to a question that we can't even ask yet. But I'm thinking about it. And I think that's the only thing I can say to close this out. I'm thinking about these things. <laughs> This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children